Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. News this morning out of London. Judges ruling there that there has to be a vote in Parliament before the UK government can begin the two-day countdown, two-year countdown to Brexit. The country's Supreme Court has already made room for a December appeal on its docket. Stephanie Flanders of J.P. Morgan Asset Management will join us uh, in just a moment as we wait the results of a monetary policy review and new inflation projections from the Bank of England. We expect that at eight o'clock Wall Street time. We'll bring you BOE Governor Mark Carney's comments shortly thereafter. In Washington, it was as expected a dead meeting yesterday. The Federal Open Market committee left rates unchanged, hinting they could rise uh, in December. Let's get to the latest on Brexit. I want to bring in Stephanie Flanders, Chief Market Strategist for the UK and Europe at J.P. Morgan uh, Asset Management. Good morning, Stephanie. Morning. Good to hear. Let's uh, let's start with the ruling itself here. A panel of judges deciding there has to be a vote. How big a blow is this to, to the UK government? Well, I think it's it's a blow to the Prime Minister, Theresa May, who had said very clearly and loudly that she didn't want to have this vote. So in that sense, it's obviously a jolt to her standing and her authority. But I would uh, caution those who are sort of seeing this as a sign that somehow the UK is not going to have, not going to leave the EU or or that that Article 50 is not going to get triggered. Remember, this is a vote of members of Parliament, many of whom have uh, constituencies that voted to leave the EU. EU. Um, and certainly, even if they didn't, they will not want to be seen to be kind of not respecting the people's will. We had a majority vote to leave. So I think uh, we should be cautious of suggesting that this is somehow a sign that we're going to have a softer form of Brexit or that maybe even that the UK won't leave the European Union. I think uh, if there is a vote, it'll be a vote in favour of triggering Article 50. Though we may get a bit more debate about what what you know, life outside the EU will actually look like for the UK, and that would be good perhaps for transparency. Put this in, in, in some context for us, if you would. A few days ago, a, a Northern Irish judge rejecting a pair of challenges to, to, the, to the Brexit process. How does this fit into the, uh, the panoply of, of legal challenges we've had? Well, as you say, we've had, uh, there are lots of different uh, challenges. I think this was always the strongest one because there was a feeling even among some people who voted for Brexit, I think even one of the lawyers involved in this challenge of the government that has won today uh, had voted for Brexit and just had quite a strong feeling that Parliament's sovereignty should be uh, respected. I think some of the other ones that question whether or not the referendum has any binding uh, power, any of those things, I think they're less likely to go anywhere. But this is this was always a serious one because you know many people when they voted for to leave the EU were actually voting to put parliament back in charge and to give uh, British institutions power um, that some say they had lost to European institutions so it was always a bit odd to say well we're going to do this but we're not going to let parliament have a say remind us who who brought this case here uh, an investor and a hairdresser 
Uh, yes, although actually it ended up having quite a collection of people attached to it, as I say, because it was considered to be quite a good, um, have quite a strong case. Um, but uh, as the judges themselves said, uh, it was, you know, they were very specifically saying this is not a judgment about the rights and wrongs of Brexit or a particular model of Brexit. This is about the legal process. And what they judged was once you trigger Article 50, because Article 50 uh, says that you have two years then to leave the EU and that's going to happen come what may. Um, the view was that that was overriding Parliament's power because even if you had a parliamentary vote somewhere down the way, if you were definitely going to leave, you'd never given Parliament a choice to say whether they wanted that to happen. Theresa May, the, the Prime Minister, is saying she will appeal this decision and the, uh, the Supreme Court already has carved out some time on the December docket. Yes, and that's a, obviously an accelerated timetable, uh, both you know here and in the US. Uh, there's usually takes a lot longer for these kind of appeals to work through the courts, but they clearly understand that this is something that has to be resolved. And they would, ex the, certainly the lawyers involved in the case have said they expect the, the, this to be resolved one way or another by the beginning of the year. So that would clear the way for uh, the Prime Minister to stick to the schedule that she suggested, which is to trigger this Article 50 process, notify the European Union that the UK wants to leave, formally um, by February or March. Looking at sterling here against the dollar, it's at 124.41, a three-week three high against the dollar. How has the market reacted to this, the legal maneuvering, this waiting game here to get some clarity on the process? Well, to this this decision obviously was was genuine news, and uh, there was a big bounce to sterling that came from that, which has largely continued. The the equity market uh, initially had a positive bounce and then has come back, but of course we've seen over the last few months that often the pound and the equity market have moved in opposite directions because the equity market is so dominated by companies with foreign earnings that are that are helped by a falling pound. So uh, I wouldn't read too much into that. I think the pound move is the most significant one. Whether it'll last, though, I think is a question. Mark, because as I say, there's this kind of initial knee-jerk reaction to this vote, which is if it's anti-Theresa May and if it's anti-government, it must be kind of anti-Brexit. Um, I'm not sure that it does put into qu into question, you know, that fundamental direction of the UK. And if that's that leaving of Brexit mm. that's brought the pound down, I think the pound could go back down quite easily. Yeah, I I, um, <clears throat> I, I wonder sort of uh, here in the US, uh, when there's a Supreme Court challenge like this, often there will be other parties who, who will sign on. Uh, what do we know of who might join this case and, and what it might look like? Give us just a sense of how this will play out here in December. Yeah, I mean, there's not. It is a slightly different process uh, and a lot more wigs involved uh, than uh, in the U.S. <laughs> well said, yes. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it's it doesn't end up be it doesn't tend to be uh, the same kind of bandwagon that you might see in this kind of very politically charged case in in the U.S. Now that the government has actually said they will appeal this decision, there was some question about whether they would, but they are now going to appeal. Um, it'll be a fairly, I think, a, 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 the actual legal process will be quite ordinary. Orderly. Of course, what you will have, and you're already seeing, I'm looking at my Twitter feed and just the, all of the comments and the reactions by politicians coming into this vote, you will have a battle over the interpretation of this ruling and uh, what kind of, what that vote would look like uh, once we do, if we do indeed have a vote in Parliament. So all the, there'll be a lot of political debate around this, but it won't largely be in the, in the sort of hallowed courtroom. It'll be on the, and the airwaves of Bloomberg and everywhere else. <laughs> what did the, P I mean, folks, is a, a lot of other news today and out of the United Kingdom, a good PMI number. Stephanie Flanders, what does it signal this resiliency post-Brexit? 
Well, I'd be inclined to say it partly it signals that we haven't left the European Union yet. So all the things that one might be worried about in terms of the impact of the economy, you know, nothing has actually changed. So any effect that you were ever going to see was to do with expectations and uncertainty that hasn't flat. Uh, translated into a fall in consumer confidence, which you might have thought it might have done. So that's uh, that's showing strength. But we've certainly seen it translate into weaker investment intentions and concerns around what the trade outlook in the next few years is going to be. So, you know, the resilience tells us that uh, we haven't had the short term hit, the confidence we might have had, but we are going to have a big hit uh, to consumers coming down the track from higher inflation, from the fall in the pound. That matters in an economy that is completely dependent at the moment for its growth on consumer spending. So watch this space. I really don't think that this this the impact is going to play out over a long time. Stephanie, thank you so much. Stephanie Flanders with J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Most beneficial to have her on. As we go to Charles Dumas, TSL Research, United Kingdom 10-year gilts, that's their note, yield rises six basis points to a 1.23% 1.23% level. Charles Dumas, the inflation jump by the BOE. Are you surprised at a 2.7% statistic? Well, I mean, you know, they have no, they have totally <clears throat> poor um, forecasting record, but um, there's nothing wrong with that number. The, the uh, latest quarterly, I mean, just the latest three months have seen an annual rate of inflation of around 2%. Uh, and there's very little doubt that the target, which is 2%, will be exceeded significantly um, by next year, if not by the end of this year. So, um, so you know, they've done the right thing. I mean, we're looking at a country with um, a growth rate that's been above potential for a while, with um, full employment and with a huge devaluation and inflation at or above target. I mean, the only thing they can do sooner or later is tighten, not loosen. The BOE saying it has a limited tolerance of above-target inflation, a shift in tone here saying monetary policy can respond, quote, in either direction to changes in the, the economic outlook. What, is that, what does that response look like? Well, that response looks like softening people up for the fact the next move is going to be tightening, not, not um, easing. The, 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 uh, the, the weight of this court decision, of course, not, not felt in the minutes directly, but is certainly the, the, the backdrop to them. The BOE saying there is still persistent uncertainty about that EU deal. That's going to weigh on, on the UK uh, economy. Uh, I know you've just been pouring over the minutes as, as, we, are, as we have been here. Uh, but talk about that weight, how heavy that weight is and, and how, much, how long that's going to continue to drag on the UK economy. Well, the real question is how seriously people choose to take it, because, um, you know, the external tariff of the EU, I've seen some people say it's average is 3%, others that it averages 6%. Uh, whichever that is, um, the, the devaluation of, six, of 15% vastly exceeds that, and so the, the access of Britain to the, um, to the main markets in, in the Eurozone uh, will, will uh, you know, be better than it was um, before Brexit, uh, before the Brexit vote. So in that sense, um, it's, it's, a, it's not a major material factor. But of course, if people think it's a major material factor, then, um, then people will be sensitive to uh, the progress of negotiations, which are going to take years. Well, that, that's the key phrase here, Charles, and this is something you've been so good at in your research, is the phrase, it will take years. 
the media, and David Nair is guilty of Culpable, this as anybody yes. is trying to get to Friday and the U.S. <laughs> jobs report, you, yeah, get to look, you get to look out longer. What is the linkage of these market actions to a statistic as simple as real GDP in the United Kingdom? Are they linked or is that over, over, overweighed? Well, I, frankly, no. I think they're linked to a, a view about um, about Brexit, which um, is wrong, namely that it's going to be a disaster for the British economy. Um, in fact, my main concern is that the, the, the British economy actually needs a significantly lower exchange rate, which it's now got. Um, but, of course, that could easily get unwound if um, if people reach the conclusion that actually things aren't so bad after all. Yeah, well, so, well, let's get back in. Let's have you be the first one to comment. Then Robert Sinch, Amherst Pierpont, completely goes the other way from consensus and says, look, I, Sinch says, I don't see bad data. And he, he doesn't single point forecast, but he models a vector to a 130 sterling. You don't think that's outlandish, do you? No, not at all. No, no, no. I mean, it was 1.30 a month ago or so, and um, uh, I'm not sure they were so wrong then. So if if we are overestimating here the effects of, of, of the Brexit, uh, is it because is it, are we is it because the trading relationship is relatively small? And, and if that is the case, if we're overestimating it, how long until we get past the psychological weight of, of the vote? Well, I think the trading relationship actually is, is, is big. It's just that the change in the pricing of British goods as a result of that being outside rather than inside the EU is relatively small. Uh, and therefore, a large quantity of people will be exactly where they were before. And in fact, some people are better off because of the devaluation, which is um, uh, so, so in, it's not so much that the trading relationship isn't important. It's just that um, the effect on it of Brexit is being exaggerated. Um, to answer your question, how long it'll take people, I, you know, I don't think it'll take all that much longer of um, the lack of uh, disastrous numbers for people to start saying, well, wait a second, um, you know, let's uh, unwind some of this uh, overexcitement. Uh, Stephanie Flanders from JP, JP Morgan Asset Management at the top of the show was saying uh, the reason the numbers have been good is because the UK is still in the European Union. You don't, you don't buy that argument that, that uh, you know, th- things will no, change once the trigger is pulled. No, I don't. I don't think that's relevant at all. I think the the relevant point is that um, is that the pound has gone down by much more than the external yeah. European tariff, and so um, you know, in, in trading terms, the British right. are not seriously disadvantaged. Charles, I want to get this in. We'll come back and talk about a greater U.S. economics in Europe as well. Charles Duma, when you look at the current account deficit, this is certainly where everybody circles back to. Is the question the level of the current account and a hope for a lesser deficit, or is the issue the length of time of a substantial deficit? Well, I think uh, I think the size is is the most important thing, and uh, and also the direction which has been upward, of course, for the current account deficit. Uh, and current account deficits have been coming into their own as determinants of foreign exchange. I mean, the. Um, Yen for the last year has been very strong, at least partly because the current account is in large surplus and people have lost conviction in um, Kuroda and the Bank of Japan. Similarly, um, the Eurozone uh, has a huge current account surplus um, and as a result, um, the euro has failed to go down when Mr. Draghi eases yet more and yet more, um, contrary to popular expectations, because the, the capital account um, is important, but it's no longer quite as important as it used to be because, mm. um, you know, it's entirely based on, on one's belief in central banks, and that is weakening. Charles Dumas, with optimism on the United Kingdom, 
economic and I might say political economic experiment with TSL. Uh, uh, Charles, do you share the same enthusiasm for the United States? And is this a Fed that is grievously behind? Uh, yes, I think so. Um, in, in a way, the Fed's further behind than, than the UK. Um, and um, I mean, you've got a you've got an economy. I mean, it's not as far behind in a way as as the eurozone, where where they've got an economy growing at an above trend, and it's on trend. The inflation rate is is uh, very far. It's not very far from the the target, and they've got massive negative interest rates, um, you know, and, and QE. In the U.S., you've got um, interest rate at half percent. Um, in, core inflation rate of 2%. The actual inflation rate early next year is going to be over 2% because the oil price is up from early mm-hmm. 2016. Uh, and, um, you know, the economy is growing at sort of about 2 2.5%, when unfortunately the trend growth rate is only 1.5%. The, the trouble is that uh, that trend growth rate is so much lower because productivity growth is much less than it was. And we'll be hearing a little bit this afternoon about that. But... Um, this afternoon, our time, that is, this morning, your time. What do you, you make of the, the, the growth forecast, the revisions there? Again, the, the, the 2017 GDP forecast, 1.4% versus 0.8% and, and the cut uh, to 1.5% from 1.8% in 2018. In, in in Britain, yes, exactly. I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, frankly, these forecasts are almost impossible to make. But one, the sort these sort of numbers are in fact probably um, at or above potential in Britain. Um, you know, the the labour force certainly, if we're going to restrict immigration, is not going to be going up as much as in the past, and the um, and, and productivity growth has been very small. So. So I've got to say, um, you know, it means there's more, if anything, whatever degree of overheating there is increases. And on top of that, you get, um, you, you, you've got the inflation effect of the devaluation. So I, it, it all heads towards um, tightening in Britain. Um, and, um, you know, in the U.S., I think the same is true. What's the the effect been thus far of of um, of, of lower sterling? Again, we've we've seen the uptick today, but um, mm-hmm. to what extent is currency playing in all of this? Well, I mean, it is it is important. The um, the pound is um, sorry. The the inflation rate reached one percent in September from much lower levels um, earlier. I slightly exaggerated earlier on when I said it could be above the two percent target by the end of this year, but um, it 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 should be um, much closer to that 2% target, and it'll be above the 2% target um, pretty mm. early on next year. Um, but you see, until uh, until um, uh, June, we were looking at inflation rates of about a quarter to a half percent. So it's, it's, it's way up well, there. Well, let me circle back then and to finish up here, Charles Duma, with what we see from BOE today, mm-hmm. which is a 2%, 2.7% run rate on inflation out 24 yep. months. What's, where will that inflation statistic end for the United Kingdom? Is it above 3%? No, I, I think that it'll go, it'll go above 2.7% on the impact effect of the devaluation. Uh, and, that, and once that moves out of the data, which will be some, sometime late next mm-hmm. year, uh, the 12-month data, that is, the, um, the, the 
growth rate of prices will probably start to ease back quite quickly because um, there probably won't be a complete follow-through in wages, unless, of course, they carry on staying easy. Uh, but it seems more likely than not that certainly if the um, government uh, goes towards an easier fiscal policy, which yeah. we'll talk about, that, um, that, that the Bank of England is going to be tightening quite soon. This has been wonderful. Charles Dumas, thank you so much. Just uh, the news flow this morning, extraordinary, and it's great to get his uh, perspective. And, and again, folks, what we try to do on surveillance, David, we've heard this all morning, two starkly different views two starkly on different the future views, yeah. of the United Kingdom. Just stunning. Yeah, uh, and great to, to contrast them with each other. And uh, again, uh, the, the news slide of London in particular today, particularly uh, strong yeah. with that court decision out just before the, the show kicked off this morning, uh, that the, the parliament would have to vote on whether the, the government could trigger Article 50 and, and the, the reaction. Subject to appeal. Yes, subject to appeal, uh, headed to the Supreme Court in the UK yeah. uh, in early December. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. David Blanchflower joins us now. He was kind enough to be with us yesterday for the Fed and joins us today with the most British perspective yeah. as well. David, what you are so good at, and this goes back to your wage curve uh, classic, is the idea of a nation and the partition of its labor. Is London so buoyant, so unique, so world class that the buoyancy of London can support all of the United Kingdom towards a lesser inflation better economic growth compared to the gloom, and to a better, stronger sterling? Well, obviously, it's a big positive and a big help, but it can't compensate for what's going on outside London. I mean, you only have to look at the at house prices. So the answer is it clearly helps, but it doesn't help enough. And what we've seen this morning are forecasts from the MPC, which are better in the in 2016 and somewhat worse later. But actually what we're seeing is very slow growth, a rise in unemployment, um, and actually quite a big pickup in inflation. So the story is, despite the strength and the resilience of London, it's not being able to really mm -hmm. kind of deal with the, sh the oncoming shock of Brexit. And I always want people to keep in their minds that the business cycle rolls. It rolls eight to ten years. Well, we went into recession in 2008. Well, you can add eight to, to, to 2008. So presumably there's a Brexit shock, but also there's a there's a uh, presumably a recession right. shock coming at economies around the world, and especially to the UK. So these are very tough right. times. Uh, and in some sense, the the ruling in the court this morning, which suggests that perhaps the Brexit shock will be less than had, had been su suggested, right. had very positive impact on the pound. 
So this, I, I think this is big uncertainty, but London ain't enough. <laughs> okay, David, would you inform the good professor from uh, the Dartmouth bubble that I cannot add 2008 and 8, just so, <laughs> just so he understands where we are. You were up late watching that baseball You got that, that right. That baseball game. That baseball game. <laughs> You know, I don't come on. I don't give you grief about Premier Football. Don't give me grief about Indians Cubs. <laughs> Danny, you, you mentioned that court case. Mark Carney was just asked about it. He said he he can't comment on it, but he said it's an sure. example of the uncertainty that will characterize this process. What happens in this vacuum, the short-term vacuum now between now and when the Supreme Court takes up this case, the the bigger vacuum between now and March when Theresa May says she's going to to pull the trigger on on Brexit? What happens politically, and what happens uh, in the monetary policy space? Well, obviously, the big deal, and I wrote about it in The Guardian this week, the big deal was um, were the attacks on the independence of the Bank of England this week uh, eventually resolved itself by Mark Carney saying, yes, he'd extended it by one year, not three. Um, now what happens is the pressure turns to the fiscal authorities, and the Brexiteers actually started to attack um, Hammond. So that's a big part of it. Um, so a great uncertainty. Uh, the central banks trying to stand and be stabilizing. I think the vote today, actually your commentators earlier talked about what the decision today did. I think actually it does one thing. It forces the government to actually make much more clear what their position is actually going to be, what their bargaining position is. They sort of said they're not going to tell anybody because that would make it be a mistake. I think that was a huge mistake. And I think Parliament's going to force them to say, well, what is it that you want? So maybe, maybe mm -hmm. this decision will actually force some clarity. But I think the really big word is uncertainty. Mark Carney clearly would not have known the decision mm. because they made the decision in the last few days and right. did their forecast. Right. So, this, so this move perhaps slows Brexit, perhaps makes the, the, the move to hard Brexit less, which the markets will like. But I don't think it really mm -hmm. resolves anything. I just think this is a self-inflicted wound, a, a, an economic tsunami. We're looking at the biggest three-year overshoot uh, this bank has ever predicted when it comes to inflation. Correct. Mark Carney acknowledging that a, a few moments ago. What does his acknowledgement of that say about Mark Carney and about the Mark Carney BOE? Well, I think what it says is that um, they've been trying to do their job. They've been trying to ride the political storm that's been coming at them. Um, and they don't have an easy task. I mean, the big thing that I look at is that in 2017, um, um, three months ago, they were forecasting CPI of 2. Today, they're forecasting 2.7. And there's an overshoot in 2018 as well. So these are um, tough days. This right. is long memories of the great <clears throat> moderation. This is the great moderation right. disappeared. This is the great right. confusion, I think. Danny, I've had the privilege of being in your lectures at Dartmouth to watch a room silent as you go on. Willem Bowder gave us the great privilege yesterday of a dissertation on uh, ISLM Hicksian economics. Mm. I put the chart out on Twitter. Let me have you uh, weigh in here. Uh, Bowder is adamant that we have a near horizontal LM curve, which means it's non-responsive to interest rates. That's not good for Chair Yellen. And we have a vertical, near vertical IS curve, which means the best we do with our monetary policy, we can't goose output and make GDP better. Do you agree with Professor Bowder that fiscal is the only solution to slam the IS curve to the right? Is that the only outlet we have? 
Well, it's probably not the only one. I mean, he's not saying there is nothing that can be done, but I, I certainly took the view that the greatest macro error we've met, that was made since 2009 was actually this dreadful, reckless thing called austerity. And I think the reality now is with interest rates so low, with such high levels of asset purchases and shocks coming along, the, the, the reality is that the fiscal authority is going to have to do something. And it's certainly clear in the, US, in the UK because right. in the next three weeks, um, the chancellor is going to have to move. But it's a reality okay. in the United States as well, because remember, there's a shock coming. Um, you're going to have to deal with that. So I do think that the fiscal authorities have learned their lesson. Hopefully, I mean, I, hopefully today, okay. Will, Willem and I can <clears throat> declare austerity is dead. No. And it's now time for well. the fiscal folks to to take over because the right. central banks have been the, the only show in town and they can't do much anymore. Very, and, and Willem's right. Very quickly here, Professor, the critics of David Blanchflower will say we don't trust the government to pull back on the fiscal excess when needed. Do you have a confidence that with all we've learned in the last eight years, we can be responsible with our fiscal excess if we need to provide immediate fiscal stimulus? Well, I think that obviously the concern would be, do you take the punch bowl away Thank at you. the appropriate time? But the problem has been the punch bowl should have had stuff in it. So I think that's really rather the wrong question now. The question is, how quickly can they act? Um, where does this go? What's the best way to do so? Um, that's the way to think. Okay. And we will, we will think about what to do to take okay. it away. But taking it away was actually right. the thing that got us in problems in the first place. Da uh, David, thank you so much for being with us on short notice. I promise the next time you and I get together, we will discuss Ernie Banks. Yeah. Professor Blanche Flower from England, from Hanover. This is Bloomberg. David Gura here with Tom Keen. A great pleasure to have with us the pioneer of index investing, Jack Bogle, founder of the Vanguard Group, a former CEO of Vanguard. Is, Thanks is, very much for being here. Is Mr. Bogle old enough to remember the last time the Cubs won? <laughs> I'll let you ask that question, Jack. Tom. I'll let you ask. I remember it like it was yesterday, Tom. <laughs> Good morning, sir. We hope you are healthy and proper. David, Good pick it up. a great note to begin the, begin the chat with. Yeah, it is. I, I watched the whole darn thing last night, so I'm Good a little tired you. this morning. There you go. Uh, let me ask you, first of all, we, we've, we've just heard from the Bank of England. We heard from the Fed yesterday. As you're investing, as you're thinking about investment today, to what degree are you weighing what central banks are, are doing? Well, you have to take that into account. You obviously have to take it into account as a background for what you're doing. But those, some of those, uh, I mean, the, the market is, is very much, to me, the financial markets at least, are very much on their own. The central bank is only part of it. They're a good indicator of, uh, you know, national policy in both cases. Um, but I, uh, and small changes, I think we should just ignore. To be honest with you, what, what, to what degree do you think they're cognizant of what's happening in the in the financial markets? Are they paying attention? Are they making decisions based on the the, the fear or awareness of reactions in the markets? Well, certainly the Greenspan Fed was very sensitive to market fluctuations, and uh, I would say the the, the, the new Fed, uh, Federal Reserve Board and Chairman are somewhat sensitive to that, but you almost have to be because the, the, the stock market, for all its foolishness, and Lord knows it has plenty of that, is a, one way of taking the temperature of how investors feel about the future. 
Jack, we all know the trends of passive versus active. It is There's no other thing discussed, frankly, that I can tell in the mutual fund business and what it means for our listeners and their retirement accounts. Where is the world that you invented? Where is it in 10 years? Where is it in 20 years when the Cubs win again? <laughs> What is, what is the what is the impact of what you wrought? Not now, sir, but two decades out. Well, you know, it's it's hard to look ahead, but it seems to me that this is a very enduring trend. You know, when people say that the indexing phenomenon and the phenomenon, indeed, it is, is just a passing fancy. I say, just, I think we can be certain that using your number, Tom, that, that 20 years from now, there will be more cell phones in use around the world than there are today. There will be more indexing in use around the world in 20 years from now. It's a very powerful trend. It's built on, as you know, yeah. in sound economics. Um, we all have finally come to recognize that the market, <laughs> total stock market, the value of the market, is a, is a finite number. And uh, the key thing, it, 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 the returns are generated by businesses who earn money, pay dividends, reinvest the rest for growth and efficiency. They're competitive, uh, they're efficient, they're innovative, they're technology-oriented, and we, we, accept, we right. access that, those returns through the stock market. It then becomes a question of how are the stock market returns shared among investors and among Wall, Wall Street itself, or, or maybe how are those returns shared between right. Wall Street and Main Street. So getting a larger share for the investor is clearly good for investors. There's no way around that. And it's equally clearly going to make some dramatic changes in Wall Street because because right. their revenues will go down. Relative revenues are certain to go down. David, I just put out on Twitter a Bloomberg chart that I'd recalled from a year ago, and it is stunning post-crisis, the shift. Mm. It's just just no one would have predicted it except maybe Mr. Bowden. <laughs> Jack, let me ask you about risks. I, I've I've read that you like uh, you like risks that you're able to understand. When you're looking at the the world today, what's a risk, or what are some risks that you have trouble getting your head around? Well, the risks that I just don't know how they're going to come out. I mean, I, I can understand them pretty well. Uh, and a tremendous uncertainty about the coming administration in 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 the United States about our coming election. Uh, you know, it's pretty clear. Um, that uh, there may well be, depending on who wins, uh, greater uncertainty about uh, the federal government's role in our economy, um, policies that are out there that are, that are proposed that impede fair trade, free trade among nations. That's a big negative. Um, tax policies that increase the inequality we have in our society, and you know the lack of or di di diminution of our support of NATO and the European economic policies, increased racial tensions. We can see all that in, in one of the candidates. And uh, every one of these major negatives are major negatives for our society, for our economy, and for our financial markets. So we're at a sensitive time. Now, that said, uh, my fellow Princetonian Donald Rumsfeld is noted for saying, and uh, you know how how are the, those known unknowns going to be resolved? But what about the unknown unknowns? And that's a very wise statement. There's always something going on that you don't know about out there. Nobody's thinking about. But I I, I think the markets are highly valued. And I don't think substantially so. And these things that I just talked about trade, role of the government, 
income inequality, mm-hmm. racial dis- tensions, uh, those kind of things will just make those uncertainties right. into, into real problems for our economy right. and our financial markets. David Guerra here with Tom Keene. Jack Bogle joining us, the founder of the Vanguard Group, former CEO of the Vanguard Group. And, and Jack, bring some comfort to a dad of two young kids who is trying so hard not to think about college more than a de- more than a decade out here looking at returns looking at this uh, uh, long search for yield wherever it may be what, what's it going to look like for folks like me uh, 10 years out well you know looking at 10 years and, and and probably beyond returns will be lower than they have on a historical basis uh, it's not very complicated you know the dividend yield in the last 65 years I've been in this business has been around Four and a half percent today. It's two, and uh, that's a two and a half percent dead weight loss. Uh, earnings growth in that period was pretty close to five, and uh, with GDP growing at the rate you mentioned earlier, right. something like one or two percent this year, uh, earnings growth is not going to be as high, and the market is relatively highly valued. At Twenty, I make it at twenty-three times earnings compared to a norm of seventeen. Right. So I think if you're lucky. In an equity program, you might be able to get 5%. In a balanced program, maybe 2.5% because bond yields are also low. So you just have to plan for that in your saving. And uh, not to commercialize your wonderfully independent program, but by far, when you look at those returns, you really want to kick costs the heck out of the equation because those are gross returns that the market delivers, and investors don't get those gross returns. I would like like Mr. Gurr to continue this naive, serious (laughs) discussion. And, Mr. Bogle, you've been a saint for not – look, David, the way you do college planning is to go to Blair Academy 07825. (laughs) And the way you do it, you do the – College spending beforehand. I see. So that you arrive at college broke. <laughs> and Blair Academy, where Mr. Bogle went a few years ago, yes. is a good place to start. <laughs> or the baseball well, scholarship. Well, that's, 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 that's an even better place to start now. But I should say, I had scholarships and jobs there. We knew not student loans, and my family had no money. So um, I got a long way on all I could put together myself, plus the generosity of others. But seriously, Jack, those days are over. The idea of working your way through school today, has that become a fiction? No, I don't think so. I mean, I meet a lot of children, young young men and women. uh, But I have done, I think, 300 scholarships at, at Blair and at Princeton, and they are terrific people. I mean, they're very hardworking, very international in their focus, very unselfish in their focus, very anxious to contribute to the community, as smart as all get out. Uh, they're our hope for the future, and and, and, and your kids are the, our hope for the, the future, too, David. All right. I, I, I appreciate that. Let, let me they ask are? you. <laughs> Tom, Tom's getting worried. He's met one it of may them. not seem like it now. It takes a while to grow up. Even well, took me a while to well, grow up. Comfort for me. We, we've seen changes in the in the fee structures at, at hedge funds. Are we going to begin to see changes uh, with mutual funds as well? Is the is the appetite is the acceptance of, of fees going to start to erode uh, across the board? Well, you know the, the the typical active fund manager, and that's what dominates the the only mutual company in this business. Is of course, Vanguard, and uh, the rest of them are run for. They're inside shareholders or they're public shareholders or the financial conglomerates that own them, and they're going to they're hold the line on fees as long as they can. You know, when you, when you can operate this place at maybe 12 basis points and the industry is operating at 113, uh, you know, if they, if they were to cut it, their fees in half, 
take it from 113 to say 60, they'd, they'd still be five times as expensive. So you wonder what the utility is that. So they're, they're and they're 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 leaking. They're losing money. Uh, active funds lost uh, in the last 12 months over 100 billion dollars, 120 billion dollars, and it got even worse in September. Apparently, that was those last 12 months were through August, and September was just a, a, apparently a terrible month for them. And um, I should say October was apparently a terrible month for them. And um, so you know they they're enjoying what they've got now. It's going to be unlikely for the mutual funds to cut costs. Uh, they couldn't sell a new fund at the old cost, so the, if they bring out a new one, that will be maybe a little a little lower cost. Jack, when you look at investing, as David said, with those serious questions on you know the actual assumption uh, that we're at, a lot of this is predicated on corporate officers behaving the same way. Do you just assume out one year, five years, again twenty years, as we spoke of before? that there'll be this religion of deploying cash to shareholders and that buybacks and dividend growth will still be the backbone of, of return? I, I, I think the buyback thing is kind of mysterious. Number one, which people I don't think understand very well, Tom, is a large number of those buybacks. We don't have good data on this, but a large number is because they issue all these options to their executives, which dilute their earnings, and they buy back to balance the books. It's yeah, that, okay. I'll go policy. with that. So that so that doesn't do that doesn't that doesn't improve the earnings per share at all. It just holds where it otherwise would have been. So I, I I'd guess the buyback is kind of a passing fancy, uh, and there ought to be times one wonders why these companies don't have uh, can't find better opportunities to use their cash than buying back their own stock. Is it your experience that Time Warner and Telephone is a kind of merger that can work out? I think bigness is one of the curses of our society, and uh, you know companies lose their traditional roots. They lose their interest in human beings and go to bureaucracy. Uh, they get bigger and bigger, grander and grander, um, in a cynical way that is, and uh, more and more self-important the chief executives are. And I, I, I don't see much I like in these giant mergers. And the government has traditionally been much more kind to what we call horizontal mergers, companies entering new businesses. Uh, I'm sorry, vertical mergers, companies entering new businesses, than horizontal, buying up your competitors. So um, I think the, the, the Time Warner thing may go through with AT&T, getting us right back to where we were in about 19, um, I guess the year AT&T spun off originally was mm -hmm. uh, maybe um, 19... Uh, 80, something like that. And we, we, all those telephone companies uh, are now back as one. Mr. Bodo, it's an amazing uh, story. It, it is an amazing story. Thank you so much for being with us. Wisdom from uh, Jack Bogle and someone, whether you are with Vanguard or not with Vanguard, he has touched every life within the investment community. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.
Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.